0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Delete. Really excited that today's guest is Lottie Jeffs. She is a writer and author of the new book, How to Be a Gentlewoman, The Art of Soft Power in Hard Times, which is out now. I really love the premise of this book and that's why I wanted to get Lottie on the podcast to talk about it. In a world where we're meant to be harsh and tough and have a thick skin, I really like this idea of slowing down and leaning out and nurturing your relationships and creating a space that you love. It's been described as the gentle antidote to a brutal world so if you're interested you can buy that now. It is currently out in stores. It came out this month. Uh, And a bit more about Lottie, she was the acting deputy editor of ES Magazine. She's written for so many different magazines and worked in so many incredibly exciting roles. But just to narrow it down, she was acting deputy editor of ES Magazine before joining Elle in 2015, before becoming the deputy editor there. And she covers really interesting topics from fashion to sexuality and gender, social trends and observational humour pieces. As well as writing columns, she also writes cover profiles for celebrities such as Kristen Stewart, Lana Del Rey and Victoria Beckham, to name a few. So it was really fun to sit down with Lottie, talk about her new book. We chatted about career pivots and we spoke about learning from failure. And it was just a really interesting chat, I thought. So hope you enjoy it. And if you did, please leave a rating or a review. Thanks for tuning in and see you next week. Thank you so much, Lottie, for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I know you're having like a whirlwind book promotion crazy day. Yeah, it's um, been fun. I can't wait to talk to you about it. I was reading it last night and it felt like some me time. It has a very relaxing effect, your book. Oh, good. Which yeah, I think that's, is the
1: point. That was what I wanted it to feel like a nice
0: warm hug. Yeah. A friend. It really does. But I wanna like talk about it in detail in a minute. We've met a few times because we share an amazing literary agent. But I have so many questions that I didn't get around to ask you in person, so <laughs> I'm just gonna do it here. Great, do it on the podcast. Away. But I've obviously followed you and your writing for years like not in a stalker way but you worked for Elle for a long time and a piece that you wrote quite recently about work grief when you left L, and obviously the magazine industry was having a strange old time but just on top of that you kind of pivoted into a new industry and I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about that just because it paints a picture of like your incredible career.
1: Sure well I started out as a journalist and I guess my first big break job was on ES magazine with the Evening Standard um, where I worked for Three or four years, and then moved to L, which was like a big jump up for me in salary and in like authority within the business. So I became the deputy editor of L, which was like my dream, dream job. I felt like I'd made it. Because being in a magazine, like the deputy editor gets to do all of the fun stuff, but doesn't actually carry the weight of being where the buck stops. So actually, you get to do all of the great creative stuff about being on a magazine but you don't have that sort of nagging dread of like if you've made a mistake or there's some legal issue like it doesn't actually fall on you it falls on the editor-in-chief so it was like the perfect role for me at that time and I loved it and then the editor-in-chief Quit unexpectedly, as far as I was concerned, obviously not as far as she was concerned, um, because she had another job uh, elsewhere, a kind of bigger and better job. And she left me in charge of the magazine. So she told me she was leaving. And the same day, she sort of marched me up to the executive floor and told them to make me the acting editor-in-chief. Whoa. So it was a bit of a baptism by fire and I found myself in charge of the magazine, which was fine because I'd kind of, you know, been there a good few years, knew what to do, knew how to do it. It wasn't scary in terms of the actual work. It was just a bit unexpected. Mm-hmm. So I did that for, I think I did six issues, which equated to like roughly six months, maybe a bit less. And during that process, I was also applying for for the official job of editor of the magazine, but also knowing that a lot of other people were applying for the job of editor of the magazine. So it was this kind of strange dynamic where I had to kind of keep things moving, keep the magazine coming out every month, but still put a load of work into my job application and also know that it could be taken away from me at any moment. And so there was a lot of sort of talk about who was in line for the job, who had applied, you know, how the whole process was going. But I tried to just kind of keep focused on the job I was doing and put my all into the application, really. Didn't get the job. (laughs) It actually went to someone else on the team who was a really, really experienced fashion director, had been at the magazine for a long time. So she became the editor-in-chief and I became her deputy. And then to cut a long story short, after a few months, I... Redundancy. And then I was like, what do I do now? (laughs) Because I'd kind of, that was my dream job. I hadn't really ever thought beyond that. So I started to try and think a bit differently about my career. And rather than just think, oh, well, what's the next magazine job I can get? Think, how can I reappropriate these skills that I've built up as a magazine editor into a different industry? So I started meeting headhunters from the advertising world. Before I knew it, found myself interviewing for a job at a really big ad agency called Ogilvy. And they gave me a job as a creative director at O&M, what was at the time O&M. And then I just sort of started working as a creative director in advertising. <laughs> I didn't, again, like didn't really expect it to happen. And my remit was to come in and do things differently, which was great because I didn't have a clue how to do things the normal way. I had no experience of being a creative director in advertising. There's real similarities in terms of using words and images tell a story and engage an audience but that's kind of where the similarities Mm. begin and end I think so I was thrown into this whole new industry whole new job that I had no experience of didn't really know what I was doing incredibly male-dominated I mean having come from a women's magazine to an advertising agency it was just like wow who are these people? They were the kinds of people I just hadn't really come across in my previous career. But it was great and really fun and got a lot out of it. feel like, honestly, I'm not sure that industry was for me. Maybe it was that agency, maybe it's the industry. I don't know. I'd like to, you know, I'm open to carrying on in that world um, in some capacity. But in the end, after a year, I decided to leave and just concentrate on my book and go freelance and get back into writing and writing for myself, writing features for the national press and magazines and stuff, which I find personally more fulfilling than making ads. But I did enjoy it and I did get a lot out of it. So that's where I am at the moment, career-wise. I kind of pivoted and then pivoted back again. Mm -hmm. But ended up
0: in a slightly different place to where I started. I think it's so such a relatable thing that we kind of have options now and sometimes a pivot can work out. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's just like, okay, yeah, I tried that and like added it to the CV, but ultimately it made me realise what I want. Absolutely. It can be really
1: helpful. I really realised a lot about what's important to me in a job, particularly in terms of the sense of community at work and the people that I'm working with and my place in a big organisation. That was a real learning experience for me and also just realising that I did have to care about the work I was producing. I think by the time I left L, I was quite, I think my nose was like slightly out of joint for how things had played out there and I felt like maybe I could just take a job for the money and I didn't need to care about the work I was producing. But it turned out that I found that really hard. I think there's a fine line between having a healthy amount of distance and perspective on the the thing that you're producing and just genuinely not really having any emotional investment in it at all to the point that you could take it or leave it. And I think that what we should all try and do is find a kind of healthy middle ground.
0: Yeah, totally. And I think it really taps into a lot of people's kind of um, the balance of the two when you're making something that you care about. But then obviously now we're in this like influencer culture where brands like snapping it up if it's popular. And then you're Mm. like, whoa, okay, everything's like commercialized. And where's the line? Yes. (laughs) But with the book, as I said, I read it last night and it relaxed my entire body, actually, because it's a very it's just a very soothing, holding your hand a bit, through life book, but in a fun way. But I wondered where did the idea come from because it does feel like we need someone telling us to like slow down a bit and take care of our surroundings a bit more and our and be more polite is what I got out of it. (laughs) Yeah. I
1: think the idea came from initially I wrote an article that was quite a pithy, funny listicle of the 39 things that make you a gentlewoman. And I wrote it for Elle and it really resonated with people. People were really like sharing it, talking about it, did quite well online in terms of traffic. And I always had this list in the back of my mind as something that there was more to, because it was things like a gentlewoman plays cards, reads books to children, does at least three swimming strokes, drinks whiskey, you know, just like stuff that cool women do. I always felt like there was more to it and that there was probably behind this quite like pithy, magaziney, like jaunty list. There was a real compelling way of being in the world and I started to think about the women in my life that I really look up to and find inspiring and the kind of women that like you spend time with them or you go for a drink with them or you're lucky enough to have them as a friend or family member and you come away feeling really uplifted and inspired and good about yourself and looked after and seen. And I started thinking about these women and thinking about how I could maybe aspire to be a woman like that myself. And then this kernel of an idea started becoming a bit bigger. And then I just started writing and it kind of turned into something that I didn't really expect. Like it took on a bit of a life of its own and became quite rich in Literary references and expressed my own personal interest in high and low culture. So there's quotes from RuPaul's Drag Race and Ariana Grande, but then there's also like Philip Larkin poems, Plato, Simone de Beauvoir, philosophy, existentialism, poetry, psychoanalysis—like a real mix of of references that reflect my own cultural consumption. So yeah, then it just became this thing that it now is, and I. I'm really grateful to the women that worked on the book with me for letting me kind of go with it and not making me try and fit a mould that they had in their heads.
0: That's always a tough one as well. Mm-hmm. You're standing your ground. No, it's very, it's very you. Like I I yeah, felt I f- like you were kind of in the pub telling me. so me
1: stuff. and that's slightly why I'm worried about it going out into the world <laughs> if people don't like it because it feels like it's quite personal. And
0: It reminds me of that quote in I think it's in girls where someone's like, be yourself. And they're like, not too much of yourself. <laughs> it's, oh my God, that's such a good quote. Yes, it, I do feel a bit like that. I'm yeah. interested because I, reading it, wanted to ask you, because I've I, it uncovered some like a subconscious biases
1: mm. um,
0: where I feel like I'm still at that stage where I'm needing to accept that being f- very feminine is okay. Right. And it made me question that a lot. I was like, well, maybe, maybe that's too girly. And I'm like, well, no, I'm allowed to want flowers around the house.
1: Yeah, well, it's interesting that we see those things as feminine in the first place. Like, I guess for me as a gay woman and as a gay woman who has sort of played with gender identity and my presentation in the world as, like, feminine, masculine, I've never really equated things like fresh flowers, pretty things, art, beauty. I've never really equated them with feminine. I've just equated them with, like, living well or choosing surround yourself with good, uplifting, nice things. So I think almost my sexuality has freed me from a lot of expectations that I think straight women probably feel more than I do. Like, I think you're probably more worried about coming across as feminine, too feminine than I am, because you feel like the weight of patriarchy in opposition to being feminine,
0: and it's also sometimes this sounds like a bit strange, but it's almost like a rebellion to my grandmother, let's say, who mm. did have to spend all her life like making canapes for everyone,
1: right? So I'm like trying to like reclaim that domestic space, where because the domestic is so important. I think the domestic is really important, and it doesn't need to be. I feel like it's unfair that it has got this reputation of being sort of 1950s housewifey and you know wrapped in an apron and shoved in the kitchen taking control of your living space is a really empowering thing to do as a person regardless of whether you're a man or a woman and I think if we could just lose all of the sort of outdated assumptions and images that we have associated with the domestic sphere we'd all probably live a bit better.
0: Yeah because with a lot of the like advice around not advice but just like suggestions around thank you letters and things like Mm. that a lot of it I mean that doesn't feel out of date it's just that we now text people on the way home like you say you're like Texting someone in the Uber on the way home, like you could do a little bit more. Yeah, and I got sent, as we all do as journalists, like a, a survey this morning that was like Generation Z: twenty percent get broken up with in person now. Like they all dump each other over text. And I thought this book is probably quite urgent for like young people just to be like, let's be nicer to each other.
1: I hope so, and and nicer to each other's faces. I think it's so easy to be nice online and just like throw a couple of smiley face emojis at each other, but that actual human interaction. And engagement, I think, is really the root of humanity's survival. So I would really urge people to connect in that real way again.
0: And where did the inspiration come with the sections? Because I really love that you talk a a lot about work in there.
1: Yeah, I think they just felt really natural to me. So the sections in the book are like being alone, being with friends being a family, being online, being at work, being in clothes. And they were just the things that I feel comprise my life and comprise most women, my sort of age and type's life. They're the things that sort of constantly orbit around us, I think, and that we're always trying to like keep some kind of control over. But they're all interlinked. And so, yeah, that's it just felt very natural, those subjects.
0: Yeah, because when I was reading a lot of the lists, which I'd found really useful because I think sometimes we can get really stressed out about how to spend our lives because like, mm-hmm. there's so many options, I think... Esther Perel said that basically having too many options makes us miserable and sometimes we just need to yeah, simplify our lives. Yeah, the conspiracy of choice. Yeah. Totally. And this really helped in some ways of just being like actually here's 10 things to think about mm. and just chill out a bit.
1: I think when I was writing it I was worried that it might come across as a bit prescriptive and I think as women we're at a point where we we don't really want to be told what to do. But Part of me also feels like we do. I don't know if you watched the new season of Fleabag, but she does a monologue in it where she's like, I just want someone to tell me what to do. Tell me what to wear. Tell me what to think. And although that's a kind of really complex and meaty monologue that doesn't just surface level mean I want someone to tell me what to do. The the truth in it is it's quite nice and comforting and reassuring to just have some advice, you know, take it or leave it. But I personally quite like it when people tell me what to do. It it alleviates that pressure of choice that we were just talking about. And
0: yeah, I find it quite nice. Me too. That's the beauty of books, really, is that instead of going on like a Google hole, mm. like self-pitying kind of what am I doing? Sometimes yeah. it's just nice to have it kind of laid out yeah, by like someone a, that seems to have really checklist. good boundaries. Yeah. <laughs> And lifestyle, yeah. Because I wonder, I wondered what you thought about the word self care. Because when I was mm. reading the book, I actually felt like this is more enjoyable way of learning more about how to take care of yourself. But this doesn't feel like buzzwordy or yeah.
1: So I feel like the word self care has got slightly co opted and hashed taggy and has become a little bit solipsistic and about kind of, well, I'm just going to do what I need to do because I'm looking after myself in a sort of millennial, uh, self-interested way. Whereas... What I mean by self-care is like genuinely take some time to get to know and like yourself. Don't just have a hot bath and a face mask like that's not going to do it. Do that by all means. And I do talk about the importance of a bathing ritual in the book, but that is not how you're going to really get to know and like yourself. So my idea of self-care comes from maybe a slightly more grown up place, uh, slightly more measured and is about genuinely taking the time and putting in the effort and care and thoughtfulness you need to really like challenge your challenge your instincts challenge the decisions that you'd want to make in a day like challenge everything about yourself to the point that you actually really understand yourself. And then from that place, everything gets a bit easier once you know yourself in that way. It gets easier because you know that you're going to say no to this invitation to a night out because you know that it's just not your thing or you're going to go and spend some time on your own because you're feeling really stressed and you know you need to be on your own. All of those things make us happier in the long run.
0: I loved that bit, especially about, like, a gentlewoman is never a flake.
1: Oh, yeah, And how
0: flakiness... And I used to be really flaky and probably people listening are very like you're a bit flaky still. But that's exactly it, isn't it? You don't need to be flaky if you're making the right choices.
1: I think so. And also my point about self-care that I just forgot to make was that you do all of this stuff for yourself so that you can be a better friend, a better daughter, a better mother, a better co-worker. Like self-care shouldn't be entirely inward looking. It should be about looking inwards and then projecting outwards so getting to know yourself so that you can then be the best version of yourself for all of the other people that comprise your life and I think that then stops flakiness because you start really caring about what other people not what other people think about you in a sort of social anxiety sense but in a sense of like it matters it matters that I've nurtured this friendship and I've made an arrangement with this friend to meet them and be there at a certain time, it matters that I turn up, that I've made an effort with what I'm wearing, that I'm in a good mood, that I'm interested to see them, that I ask them questions, that I devote a good amount of time to being with them. That that sort of attention to detail and care and thoughtfulness, I think, is really important. And I worry that we've slightly got to a point in this sort of really Digital Instagrammy culture where those sort of like old-fashioned values in a way matter a bit less mm. because you know it's about like getting good picture for for Instagram rather than having like a really good meaningful conversation.
0: Does it mean? Do you think cutting out a lot? Not not a lot, but just mm. kind of you know the old having it all chat. But mm-hmm. do you think that making conscious decisions in life means? being okay with missing out.
1: I think you're probably right. I think there there are things that you will probably need to miss out on in the sense of it being like about quality rather than quantity. So if you look at your your week ahead, if you look at it and you feel stressed because you've made too many social arrangements, then I would advise you going through and like maybe taking a few out, but you should probably do it a couple of weeks ahead because what I don't think is okay is to just cancel things at the last minute because you're feeling overwhelmed. Like you should put enough care into your diary to be able to manage it in a way that isn't going to let people down when it comes to it so I think yeah you probably do have to make some sacrifices but just do it in a conscious way and a mindful way that's not going to upset other people
0: yeah it's such an interesting one isn't it like the kind of the different circles of life and mm. I feel like you really outlined that in the book of like fact you've got family you've got your friends mm-hmm. you've got your career you've got yourself and yeah your own needs and I just wondered as someone who is also a mother mm. recently not that recently now a year a year, year. Month a, year a month ago. Yeah. How I know this is a really cliche question but I'm also just interested in mm. someone who that doesn't have a child, how that fits into everything.
1: It basically just threw absolutely everything I thought out the window in some respects. I've slightly like now gathered it all up back from out of the window and put it back in, but At the time, having a baby, like, was just blew everything apart. I had created this really sort of nice life. I was in control of everything. I was the, like, captain of my destiny. I was really happy, really sorted. And I kind of started writing the book at that point in my life, where I felt like, I've got this. Yes. Done. Life. Tick. And then I had a baby... And then nothing was the same because I literally didn't have the time to do a lot of the the rituals and the... Things for myself that I talk about in the book, you know, going out for dinner on your own, um, you know, making the effort to go and see friends and spend good time with them. All of those things just became impossible, at least in the early days of of having a baby. And it would have been selfish of me to my wife if I had just blindly continued my way of living with a baby. It just would have been like, really. (laughs) I'm
0: off to have some rosé by myself. Exactly.
1: (laughs) I've got to, you know, my self-care rituals. I just couldn't have ever done that. So it's been a real process of like rebuilding my lifestyle since having a baby to get back some of those things that help make me, me but in a way that fits into my new family life and doesn't make anyone else in my family lack something that they need because of the choice I'm making. So it's still a process, I would say. And if you read my book and you have like three young children, you'll probably be like, Ugh, well, how am I supposed to find the time to do all of this? And yeah, it's a challenge. It is a real ongoing challenge, but it goes back to that sort of idea of editing your life and being in control of it and thinking, okay, so I only probably have a couple of hours this week to do something for myself. What am I going to do? What is the best use of my time in in those hours? So I don't think I've necessarily got it sussed yet, but over the past 6 months, you know, as my daughter gets older and it's less like about keeping her physically alive in the way it was when she was first born, which is just like so stressful, I'm able to kind of piece my lifestyle back together again but it's an ongoing like conversation with my wife we're constantly sort of negotiating things trying to figure out what's important what matters so yeah I'm in a different place now to where where I was when I wrote the book.
0: That's so interesting so did you finish the book before Yeah I was
1: like midway through it when the baby came I I obviously couldn't like pivot my entire narrative to be like oh my god life's actually really really hard (laughs) and it's really difficult to keep on top of things and oh my god I just had to kind of continue the narrative narrative that I'd set up because you know it's aspirational and it's still the lifestyle that I aspire to is just harder with a young baby
0: yeah that's really interesting I mean I, when I was reading it I didn't necessarily think he was saying must do all these things all the time it was more like I'm really pleased one of them is that. like yeah. even just being like oh this week I'm gonna send my friend who just got engaged a bunch of flowers yeah and a nice Great. note and it's instead of writing her a nice whatsapp it's just I think things- that's
1: really nice that you took that from the book and It's really nice that you're going to do that for your friend. I hope you follow through or have done it already. I've done it already. Good, great.
0: Actually, um, I did it the night I'd finished the book. I sent three bunches of flowers. And oh, notes.
1: that's so nice. Oh, that's I'm a little really prompt. pleased. Yeah. I hope that people don't read the book and think I'm saying I'm this kind of perfect, realised gentlewoman because the truth is, I had a Domino's pizza last night. I, you know, it made me watch laugh a bit that you
0: said never have food with a piece of kitchen roll as a napkin. Yeah. I burst out laughing because I do that sometimes. I
1: mean, I do, I honestly,
0: like, I think probably when I was eating my Domino's pizza
1: last night, I maybe grabbed a bit of kitchen <laughs> malt. Like, there's an element, I think, of my book which is slightly tongue-in-cheek, which comes through more in the listicles than in the, like, more heartfelt narrative. And I just hope people get to know me well enough through the process of reading the book to get that my tone with these things is slightly sort of old-fashioned
0: etiquette Yeah, which and I am not actually, actually you're from the yeah. old school world of magazines as well. And it's kind of this, yeah. like playful nostalgia. Right. But then do you think, because obviously the book is out next week... September 5th, yeah. September 5th. Do you think some people that don't know you might be like, take it the wrong way? Or? Well, they
1: might just think, oh my God, how does this person live this this life every day? But maybe that's okay that they think that about me. Like, I'd really try to. Just sometimes life gets in the way and you have to make decisions. And I decided to order a takeaway pizza last night because it meant that I could do other things that I wanted to do and I could devote time to my wife and we didn't have to like cook that evening. So we're all riddled with contradiction. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that when talking about the book, gonna be just quite honest about the fact that I don't necessarily live my brand every single minute of every single day. I maybe I try to, but is Sheryl Sandberg always leaning in?
0: i don't know i think sometimes she leans out yeah
1: maybe
0: exactly and i wondered what you thought actually about the kind of the balance of aspiration and not in our lives because Mm. i buy magazines because i want to see people looking great and i i love following people on instagram and maybe people listening will be like i don't agree with that but i like seeing people on a nice holiday because i'm like oh maybe i could go on a nice holiday next year or maybe i could go there or that glass of wine looks lovely oh italy looks good you know I, i love all that i also love people who open up and show it how it is but I wouldn't want the honesty all the time. Same. And I think, well, a
1: couple of things. Firstly, I think that there's a, a value and an intelligence in beauty and things just looking nice and being aesthetically pleasing. I don't think that's something we need to feel ashamed of liking. But also, I think that my readers and your podcast listeners are smart enough to know for themselves the, the artifice of Instagram and of magazine images and we can we can live with the contradictions of that I don't think things are as black and white as needing to always be authentic and always be consuming reality and people's you know raw emotion and not at all engaging in lovely beautiful things I think that there's a middle ground where we can navigate both of those things intelligently as women in this world
0: Mm. it's just hard isn't it because we know it's not real and we know it's just like a little snapshot of someone's holiday Mm. but like the human brain like wraps this narrative around it and we and then we think oh that person has a perfect life forever But but we know it's not true
1: but i don't know like do people really think that i don't think that i don't think my female friends think that i think we all know now enough about instagram it's been around long enough to know that people are posting tableaus of perfection because it looks nice on Instagram. I think we're intelligent people. We don't.
0: We like probably had a bad flight. Yeah, nice picture we, we though when they it. got there. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I think we're all smart enough to know the truth behind it. To me, that that doesn't negate the impact of the image.
0: Mm. I will draw the line though at Facetune and Photoshop. Oh yeah, because sure. I'm, I, I, I love mag- I love like a glossy photo shoot, but I I think if someone's lying to you, like outright right. lying... right? When it's
1: your friend and you're like, mm, you. Just genuinely don't look like that. Yeah. I think that's. And a, I'm like, step you have a mole far.
0: on on your chin and yeah, you removed it. Like,
1: come on. <laughs> I agree that that's a step too far. But that's interesting because that's like altering your self rather than curating a version of the life around you in an image and I think that's maybe a a difference
0: and I also think and I will always stick up for people who are if they're going through a rough time and I have friends that do this the only way they will make themselves feel better actually is putting up a nice picture on Instagram Mm. or curating their environment or making themselves just feel better but they might be posting something that doesn't match up to the truth but I'm like Learning to be more forgiving of that. but And
1: that's sort of something I talk about in the book where I talk about the importance of making your bed every day. And it's the same thing, making your bed look nice or taking a photo of your breakfast on Instagram that looks nice. Those things are acts that we are doing that are making us feel better by making something feel like we're in control of it. It looks nice. It's fresh. It's clean. You know, we're engaging with either an image or the reality of our nicely made bed with our fresh sheets. You know, these things matter, not as in themselves on a surface level but they matter because of what they represent Mm. a freshly made bed signifies an intention it signifies the fact that you know you're going to be out of your bed for the day doing something coming back to it and it's going to be a nice feeling when you get into it you're in control of your
0: space and I think that that's why it's important someone said to me once like make your bed and tidy your room because it's like a mini accomplishment yeah and then you're kind of setting yourself up for the day I love that totally it's like
1: clear desk clear mind I think that that for me, anyway, that way of living is really important.
0: Do you think as well, not to read too much into it, but you mentioned about control. Do you think we're in a time where we feel a little bit more out of control? Oh, yeah, totally. because of, you know, the news. The
1: news. I think it's probably a time where we feel out of control, but I'm not sure it's any more, you know, politics has always been out of our control as regular muggles in the world. I'm not sure that we're any less in control of our political world and society than women have been at any point in history. But uh, that is always a challenge and we can't change a lot of stuff. And we can try, we can go on protests and we can be engaged in society in that way, but it's really unlikely that our personal actions are going to affect any real change in the world. What we can change is our way of understanding the world, our place in the world. We can change our relationships with people, our relationship with ourselves. We can choose to live well we can choose to make our bed every day like these are small choices that we do have some agency over and i think that by exercising that agency on the smaller things it makes us more able to cope with our lack of agency in the bigger things
0: Mm. i love this book because it just opens up this like layered chat basically about kind of wellness yeah but it's but it's not that pre-packaged goop vibe mm,
1: I think that's what I was kind of going for with the book and it's maybe also more of like an intellectual wellness yeah like um, about
0: living well versus this buzzword that yeah living kind of...
1: well rather than wellness that's yeah. not, that's a nice way of putting it I think so yeah I hope that that resonates with people and also when I was writing the book it was funny because a lot of the things I write about were conversations that I was having with friends at the time so like I real life
0: conversations yeah I feel so like it,
1: that it's really going to hopefully resonate with people in that way and some of it's controversial like so cooking at home is that really important or isn't it and you know I was having like interesting debates with people but I hope that it will at least spark conversation mm. whether people agree with it or not.
0: I really love as well that you can come at it from this like same sex setup. Yeah, because you're not saying there's no way anyone can be like well you're saying that women should do this and the man I know. do that. I know I feel really smug about that actually. It's really
1: I feel like I'm always really happy that I'm gay but I was like particularly happy when writing this book because i do feel like it i really hope you get into an interview me. with someone
0: who's like meh, 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 and you're like well and then yeah
1: exactly yeah i think it does allow me to transcend some of the weight of i've never seen myself in opposition to men in a way that straight women kind of have to see themselves in opposition to I've just been freed from all of that. I've been quite uncomplicatedly gay for my entire life. Actually, that's why working in advertising was weird because I suddenly found myself in a world of straight women and straight men. And I was like, ah, how do I be in this world who am i because there was like a weird dynamic with women and men in advertising where a lot of the kind of people in that industry that get things done like uh, the producers the executive assistants were women and a lot of the big creative Thinkers were men. So there were instances where, you know, women would be like, oh, get the boys on that. Or men would be like, oh, you know, the girls will sort that out for you. And I was just a bit like, who am I in this world? Because I, I actually yeah. feel more like the men in a way. And yet I can see how. That dynamic is not something that I'm comfortable with, with the women in that space. So I was slightly floundering, I've got to admit.
0: Were people treating you differently because you are a woman, though? I think it's just
1: hard in that industry because it's so male dominated, that women are treated as others slightly. I did work with some amazing female creative directors. Well, I say some, one. And I think she was probably treated in the same way that, that men were treated. But a lot of women were in the sort of, in that agency in particular, a lot of women were in like, were the executive assistants. So I actually, for some reason, because it was like a hot desking office, found myself sitting with all of the PAs one day. Well, most days, because it was just ended up being the area I like to sit. And it was just this weird thing where I was like, I'm in an office full of men. And yet all of their assistants are women. And it just felt like a really like yeah. uncomfortable,
0: a really clear dynamic for that, yeah, me difference. that I just couldn't get my head around. There's still so much to be done in advertising, isn't there? I remember being in a brainstorm once for like a brand targeting mums, mm. and it was just loads of men with beards.
1: Yeah, I mean, so many. And what they would argue is that a good creative should be able to get into the head of. A mum, a millennial, uh, whatever, and they should be able to create good work. But you know, when
0: a man has created an advert for a woman, you can just tell. Like it's, and that's such a dangerous argument for kind of people thinking they can understand someone else's different experience from totally. a different background. And that's
1: absolutely the argument for more diversity in that industry as well, because you need black women, gay women, women difference. You need those people not just in the agency, but they need to be at the table. They need to be part of the conversation of... You don't just bring someone in tokenistically to sort of make sure something isn't dodgy at the last minute. You involve those people from the very beginning at the ideation stage and you you make better work. So I think, for me, the lack of diversity in that industry as well was problematic.
0: Mm, so interesting. Thank you. I feel like I could talk to you for hours and hours. But um, just lastly, I really enjoyed the interviews in the book as well oh, yeah. with like all the different women. And I just wondered, you must have brought so much of your experience at L to the book Mm. just because you've been an editor and it felt really well edited. Oh, thank you, yeah. And you really, like, picked really great people. You asked really good questions. Because, you know, some people add in, like, Q&As, but it's, like, not necessarily adding... Like right. anything, but it really did oh I'm glad you think I don't know that. what I'm saying Thanks. but it to me suggested that it, this is someone that's obviously like worked in magazines for ages
1: thank you is that a question? I, I <laughs> don't, I don't know say, thank
0: you. I'll,
1: I'll exhibit a gentlewoman um, characteristic which is just taking a compliment and just saying yes. thank you yes. rather than saying something self-deprecating which is basi- yeah
0: it's basically like accepting yeah a compliment, taking up space being cool with exactly it. yeah um, no, I, like- there was a question in there somewhere in my mind which was yeah what was that process how did you whittle it down to those people? Cause it's so well edited. Yeah.
1: One of the great things about working in magazines is it puts you into a world of having access to people. And actually, the people that I interviewed were the people that I I knew and that I had a relationship, an existing relationship with, and had genuinely had like great conversations with in the past about these things. And I knew they had something to say about it. It's a nice variety as well. Like, yeah. like no woman is. Th- I tried the same. to kind of keep it, yeah, keep it a bit different. And I learned a lot as well from speaking to them, particularly from Gina Martin, who talks about social media, because I am te- terrible on Twitter and learn a lot from her.
0: Mm. Oh, interesting. Well, good luck and congratulations. Thank you and so much. it's such an interesting book that opens up like so much more of a dialogue, even though just in, in itself the book is just super useful. Oh, so, thank, you. thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks.